Welcome to the Food Junkies Recovery Story Podcast. Here we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of everyday people actively working on their recovery from food addiction. I hope to inspire you and increase your awareness about recovery from food addiction. Here we will talk about personal stories of recovery and the many ways to live in recovery. We will focus on the various solutions so that you can choose the best option for yourself. I want to encourage you to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make changes for yourself, tell others about your changes, and our message of hope will spread. Well, today I have the pleasure of interviewing one of my dear friends and colleagues. Leagues, Molly, and I am so excited to have you here today, Molly, to tell us your personal story of recovery and how the changes that you've made have affected your life. And thank you for agreeing to do this on the podcast. Yeah, you bet. I Thanks for asking me, CJ. I'm happy to be here. Great. We're going to dive in and I'm just going to, I'm going to ask the general question and then you can just tell me whatever information you want to give me. But your personal journey of how you got started, what made it, what made you look into your recovery? How did that even begin? And you can make it as long or flowery as you'd like, whatever information you want to give us. Sure. I think I want to start by just saying, you know, um, whenever I share my story, um, I always feel really disconnected from it. And I think it's because it's so old news to me. It's like they're past chapters and that's just not who I am today. It's not the life that I'm living today. Um, but certainly I can definitely take you down that road, you know? Um, so my journey of recovery obviously had to start with the painful part, which was, you know, um, my parents divorced when I was nine. And what's so interesting about that is that I don't have any I don't really have a whole lot of memories prior to that happening. And um, I have lots of, I think I have lots of um, guesses as to why that is. But looking back, I really, because of those memories or a loss, lack of memory, I don't really remember my parents ever fighting, ever really not getting along. So I do remember when I found out they were getting divorced which of course they were not the ones who told us we found out in a completely wrong way. Um, but I just remember thinking like, this doesn't make sense. They never fight da da da, whatever. Um, and my dad was my favorite person. And I remember standing in front of his truck the day that he left, because of course he left, right. He moved out because it was my mom and the kids myself and my two siblings at the time. Um, and from there, I just remember it being really bad for me. I was the oldest. Um, and my dad was no longer there. And looking back, I think he was probably a buffer and maybe not because I was the object of my mom's, you know, kind of like un unwanted attention, but that he was. And then once he was gone, I think the focus was turned on me and she and I did not get along. You know, I reminded her of him. I looked like him. I acted like him, all of the things. And so there was a lot of, um, verbal and emotional and physical abuse directed at me for many years. And <clears throat> I don't have to go into all of it. You know, I think I can fast forward, um, when I turned 18, I was told to leave her home. I was never welcome back. Keep in mind at this point, I had an even younger sibling. So I have three younger siblings. My youngest sibling has a different dad. 
Um, but he was all of eight years old. So, you know, my sister's three years younger. I have a brother that's seven years younger. And then this brother that's 10 years younger. I turn 18. I'm asked to leave, told never to come back. I'm no longer welcome were her words. Um, and so from there I was 18. I had, I mean, I did have jobs because from the time I could work, I was working just to be out of the house. Um, so I knew how to work. I had a vehicle. Um, so I just started working even, uh, like more, I guess, or like I got like big kid jobs, you know, I went and worked road construction. I was a flagger for road construction. And when I went off to college, I, you know, worked multiple jobs, whatever. So, um, I guess what I'm getting at is like, as time went on, um, I really started to realize, um, it was okay that I was asked not to go back because I didn't want, when I was in the home, I didn't really want to be there anyways. I worked a lot. I was at school a lot. I, I found different ways to not be there. Um, and then, um, I never really had words to put to it, but I had a couple, I should back up just a bit. When I was about 16, 17, I had a very suicidal period. Um, I often fantasized about, you know, um, like driving into oncoming traffic, that kind of thing. Um, and that, that was like the way that my life was ever only ever going to get better as if I just didn't exist anymore. And that came back for me in my early twenties. So, um, early days in my undergraduate programs and I was, I don't know, I, my boss at the time, at, like noticed something with me, asked me about it. I broke down in her office. She got me into therapy and that's when I started therapy. And I would say that's when my recovery started. So there were a lot of things that happened that got me to that point, but it was honestly just somebody who loved me enough, cared about me enough to notice something wasn't right. Got me into therapy, got me into, um, a doctor hooked me up with a doctor, um, who understood, mental health concerns and how to prescribe antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications, that kind of thing. So I didn't have to wait for a psychiatrist. Um, and I would say that's how my journey ultimately got started. And I've been in therapy since I was 22 years old. I am a therapist myself. I'm 40. So you guys do the math. Um, some years I went every week, you know, for an hour at a time, there have been years where, um, I like didn't go for six months, eight months. I had babies. I stopped going for a while. I'm back with, and I've been with my current therapist for, oh my goodness, at least 11 years because my oldest is 11. And I know I saw her before that. So quite a while. Um, and I'm back to seeing her once a month, once every three weeks, something like that. Um, you know, it just kind of ebbs and flows that way. Um, and so that was a big part of my journey, my recovery journey, also becoming a therapist myself, um, dual license, mental health and addictions, um, was part of my recovery because as I was going through those programs, I was learning about myself and having some insight and processing and then taking that to my therapist. Um, all the while thinking, listen, mall, like your, your problem is you're codependent because your mom is narcissistic personality disordered. So you're codependent. Um, oh, plus dad's alcoholic, <laughs> like raging. Um, so definitely codependency is your issue. And if you could just get the codependency and the, like the depression and anxiety under control, you would stop using food as your like go-to self-medicator because I was never really a big drinker. And I do need to back up my story just a little bit. So 
when I, so I was never like the high school kid that like went out to, with everybody else to the bonfires in the, you know, in the fields and got drunk. Um, I didn't actually even have my first like real, like inebriation experience until I was 18 years old. Um, and then when I turned 21, um, and I live in a college town, it was like for a full year, like just, I was nuts. I was out on the town. Anytime somebody wanted to go out, I was drinking and I was drinking to intoxication. My husband would, he wasn't my husband at the time, um, <laughs> but he would have to like, come get me, um, you know, at two o'clock in the morning after the bars had closed. And I remember it being my 22nd birthday and I had gone to the bathroom. I had done the whole, what they call puke and rally. And I had sobered up just a bit, you know, how like, there's like that space where like you get some clarity. And, um, I remember thinking I'm sitting in the bar bar bathroom and it was the Molly Brown. I'm sitting in there going, holy crap. I am in the same place. One year later, this was me on my 21st birthday. This is me on my 22nd birthday. I can, my dad's an alcoholic. I can see how, um, this could be a real problem for me because I remember thinking this is warm. This is fuzzy. I don't have to feel anything like this is really great for taking emotional pain away. Um, and so, yeah. So then when I was in therapy, I was like, oh, geez, it's just codependency. And like, if you could just get over that, like everything would be amazing. Um, so I stopped drinking. I, I never went to like AA. I never anything. I just made the decision. I'm like, this is getting scary. I need to like slow that down. Um, so yeah. So then I'm like going through the programs. I'm working in corrections. I'm working with child protective services. I'm working with the court systems, right? I'm like seeing all of these clients who are coming for alcohol, right? Like DUIs, methamphetamine addiction. Methamphetamine was huge during those days. Not so much the opioids. Now the opioids are big now <clears throat> more so than anything else. Um, but that being said, I'm working with all these clients and I'm like, this isn't me, you know, like I'm constantly like trying to figure out, am I an addict? Am I not an addict? Whatever. And, you know, I think ultimately here's the thing. I think I am, I do have the, I think I do have all of the markers of addiction, but I think that I'm one of those people, which we know to be true. I'm one of the people that I don't need like severe intervention in order to turn it around. So I'm on this journey. I'm, and I, um, am eventually diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome because I'm trying to have babies and I'm young, I'm in my twenties and it's not working. Um, and they figure out, well, you've got this polycystic ovarian syndrome. It's going to make it harder for you to have babies. We've got these medications as an intervention, da, da, da. So I have babies and I'm just gaining weight like crazy at this point. Um, and my husband, uh, was listening to the Joe Rogan podcast at this point, it's 2017 now. So, you know, I've got a, um, a five-year-old and a three-year-old or two-year-old and, um, uh, Sean Baker was on the podcast and they were talking about carnivore, but they also had like mentioned keto and Sean Baker as a medical professional was talking about like the benefits for polycystic ovarian syndrome amongst other things. And my husband said, listen, I know you're not into this whole dieting thing. I know that you're like, but that you're struggling, you're in pain. You can't get down on the floor with the kids. You can't get up, right? Like all of those things he said, take, take a listen to this episode and just, just take a listen. 
you know? And so I remembered listening to it and that was like in October. I remember listening to it and thinking, okay, there might be something to this. Like food might actually have something to do with this. And I decided November 3rd, 2017, that I was going to change how I was eating for three weeks. So I was like, I can do anything for three weeks or anything for 21 days. And that 22nd day was Thanksgiving, American Thanksgiving that year. So I was like, if I hate it, I will just do what I want. Right. And it'll be Thanksgiving. So all the options will be there. And I want to say I hit like that 21 day mark. And I just, the depression that I thought was better was even better. The anxiety that I thought was better, right? Because I hadn't taken medication in years. That was even better. And I just remember thinking, well, I can go back to eating the way that I was at any point, but it's not going to be today. And I just kept going. And in the meantime, then I started to follow people on social media who were also, you know, following this keto way of eating. And this gal um, that I was following, I don't even remember her name right now. Um, She was reading Vera's book, the first edition. She was reading the first edition and she said, hey, you guys who are following me, I'm reading this book. This is what it's about. If you think this could be about you or or might apply to you, go read it. And that's kind of where it took off for me is I went and read the book as an addiction professional. I was like, holy crap, how did I not even like put this together? Um, And it was just kind of off to the races after that, you know? So um, I would say that's kind of my recovery journey. So then over the years, you know, I've given up caffeine um, as well. It just doesn't do anything for me. The, the withdrawal off of caffeine was, was worse than coming off of the food. It was like a full month. In fact, it was a February. We did no February, Clarissa and I did. And, uh, um, and it was during COVID. And so she was like threatening illegal border crossing. Like she was willing to come be with me because I was not myself. I was all over the place. I was angry. I was like emotional. Um, and now I would never, I, I, looking back, I don't know what caffeine was ever doing for me because I, I don't think it did anything for me. <laughs> like, I don't see, I don't remember what the benefit was, but all of that being said, um, I would say in a nutshell, that's kind of my recovery journey, like mental health and like addiction stuff kind of woven in there. Primarily, I would say my story is pr- probably more mental health driven that my substance use and any behaviors um, have really been in um, service of how do I self-medicate the anxiety, the depression, which I now later have actually been diagnosed with CPTSD, which means that's what I've been trying to medicate this whole time. And probably why I've been able to part of my story, then like being able to kind of like take a step back. And I know that's not everybody's story, but certainly for me, I am a person who's been able to come off of those substances and then reintroduce things over time in a wholly different kind of way. So I know I have a completely different kind of story than you've heard from Vera and Clarissa at this point. So fire away with whatever questions you've got, CJ. Well, everybody's story is their story, right? So I I enjoy the uh, aspects of your story. I can also relate to many of the things that you said. First of all, the caffeine. I don't know what caffeine was doing for me either, other than giving me more anxiety. Um, so when I went off the caffeine, it was such a blessing, but it did take an enormous amount of energy and effort to get off of it. So I completely relate to that as well. So I guess kind of what I was thinking when you were talking about your recovery story is 
what does recovery mean to you? Like, what does the word recovery mean? How do you define it? Like, what do you think about that word recovery? So, yeah. And it's so interesting because I do have kind of like this two-part piece to it, right? Like there's the clinician in me that thinks about recovery in this very like kind of clinical sense, like in the way that I was taught in school and the way that like I experienced when I was working in systems that are designed to address addiction in a very like what I would call a cookie cutter kind of way. And then my personal, the way that I personally think about recovery is for me, it's been a lot of discovery because thinking back now, right? Like just like through years of therapy and um, talking about this, I, I never had the opportunity. I was not a kid in the sense that my children are kids. I never learned how to play. In fact, it drives me nuts. They want to play a game. I've got about five minutes of attention span before I'm like, this is irritating. I have to go. Like I have to go. Um, so for me, recovery has been discovery. I am learning what it's like to be, I'm still figuring out who I even am in so many ways, as weird as that sounds. So, so I would say it's been about curiosity. It's been about trial and error. There have been a lot of times of growth. There's been times of regression. And I would say there's been times of just like stabilization of like, I've gotten to a point and then it's just had to be stable for a while. And I would say like, definitely when my kids were young, there wasn't a whole lot of room for me to have personal growth, for me to have discovery outside of taking care of a very young family. My girls are 11 and eight today, you know? So it's like, I have a bit more freedom to kind of like stretch those growth muscles because they don't need me 24, seven, 365. So yeah, I would say for me, recovery really has been discovery. I like that. I like that. Um, I also like you, you say something else about you don't have to be in recovery to be abs or I'm going to get it wrong. You yeah, no, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. You're, you're nailing it. So I also believe that they're not, you know, they, they're not one in the same. So people do not have to be abstinent to be in recovery. And just because somebody is abstinent does not mean that they are in recovery. So, you know, they, they're separate things, right? So abstinence really just means the like stopping or not ingesting or not doing a thing, right? Where recovery or discovery or whatever we want to call it is about living life. And I would say that's the other thing is like, for me, I don't want to focus every day on what am I putting into my mouth? Like, yes, that is a, a part of my day, but it's not the focus of the day. I don't have to hyper focus on or obsess over what is each meal going to be. I like to think about, Ooh, where am I going to get time to like run up to the mountains for, a, you know, for a bit today or whatever, because I live so close, right? I live in a Valley. I am surrounded by mountains. I can be in the wilderness pretty quickly. And I'm so like, my thing is like, Ooh, how am I going to fit in an adventure today? Like, that's my, that's my recovery is like, how am I living my life today? And am I like making the most memories? Because I feel like life is constantly passing me by. And if I'm going to waste time thinking about food and please, this is just me and my story. You guys, like anybody who's listening to this, I don't judge anybody for how you live your life. This is me and how I live my life. And in order for me to feel it alive, I have to have these adventures, which means that's where my focus is. Yeah. So I, we kind of come 
similarly, because when people will like, when they find out that you don't eat sugar, flour, wheat, or whatever the thing is that you don't eat, they, um, they ask you, you know, how do you do that? Oh, I could never do that. Or what are those cases may be? And I think to myself, I was like, I don't care what you eat. It's all up to you, whatever your, whatever it makes you feel comfortable. So I don't judge anybody. You need sand if you want to. I don't, I don't have a, I don't have any relationship to that. It's about what's best for me, what it is that I ingest. Yeah. I just so want I to say though, if you are eating sand, that could be a symptom of pica or pica, however that's a, please go check in with a <laughs> okay. medical professional. Okay. Maybe not the sand. <laughs> all right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's move on. I know that you talked a little bit about, did you say you had CPSD? Did I get those initials correct? CPTSD. Yep. So complex post-traumatic stress disorder. That's perfect because I didn't write it down correctly. But the question that I have for you does relate to that because you kind of alluded to it. So I was wondering, what other treatments have you found or therapies most effective for your recovery? Yeah, for me. So I would say I wouldn't be where I was without the foundation of that talk therapy. <clears throat> and um, those therapists over the years, there have been a few. Like I said, I've been with my current therapist the longest, probably just because she's been the best match for me. She's quite the hippie and I just love her so much. And definitely like my inner hippie and her inner hippie like have so much fun. But um, so talk therapy, so cognitive behavioral therapy within the, that that um, realm was probably the main foundation. And I would say that was very helpful for me early days because um, it really appeals to the intellectual side of me. It With that CPTSD, it's really hard for me to drop down into my body and go into what I call woo-woo place. It's really hard for me to find the feelings where um, cognitive behavioral therapy is it is about feelings, but it's more about like thoughts and changing your thoughts and reframing your thoughts in order to like affect your behavior. And there's less focus on the feelings. So I really like that in the beginning. As time went on, it became more and more clear that my dissociation was not getting better. So I'm very good at dissociating um, still to this day. It's not something I have a whole lot of control over as, you know, anybody with um, any form of like trauma in their history would um, probably agree with it just happens, right? My nervous system just kind of um, <laughs> goes goes on the fritz and it's like, we need to be safe. And all of a sudden I am like so dissociated. Um, so as time has gone on, I've tried things like EMDR. Now that was not super helpful for me, but it is a gold standard for um, PTSD. But again, it's effective for who it's effective for. I did give it a shot. It wasn't for me. But what I have found honestly, to be the most effective, um, are two things. And I've actually just experienced them in the last year. So March, 2023, I started neurofeedback. So they hook up, um, your head to, um, an EEG and, um, they do what's called a brain map and they determine like which brain waves are like, maybe like outside of the normed ranges. Um, now keep in mind, this has been around since the eighties. So they have like significant amounts of data, um, and so I started going to neurofeedback twice a week, 30 minutes a session. And then like they, um, every 10 weeks we would do a new brain map to see like what's improving, what's not improving, changing the protocols, that kind of thing. Coupled that with therapy and nutritional therapy with an amazing, uh, nutri uh, dietitian who understands, knows 
gets food addiction and was willing to hear me. And we had really great conversations back and forth. And then I would say the second thing that I did that was probably the most life-changing and probably ultimately the most beneficial for me um, was I did do a um, professionally um, guided psilocybin journey in Vancouver back in November, 2023. And I would say that has probably had the most profound, I think the two things together have had probably the most profound difference in my life because they got at things that traditional talk therapy couldn't get at. However, I've had discussions with my therapist recently, and I think we both agree, I could not have had the benefit of those interventions without all the work that I did prior to that. Yeah, that sounds like a lot that you put into your your recovery. And oh, yeah. um, I appreciate you giving us all that information. Um, that's so interesting. I found myself when you were talking I was just listening to you and I was like, wait a minute, I'm the interviewer here. So I have to think about what I'm going to say next. <laughs> I was so caught up with it. This will definitely okay. be. We can just have a conversation. One of the ones that I listened to again. <laughs> I'm like, what I miss? Okay. So um, what coping mechanisms or strategies have you found most effective in maintaining your recovery? Yeah, um, I think, I think a lot of it um, comes back to reminding myself that it's like my self-talk. So that self-compassion piece, you know, um, of when I show up and I'm beating myself up, just that reminder of like, it's my voice, it's coming in my voice, but those words are my mother's words and they are cruel and they are meant to manipulate and they're meant to keep me small. And I wasn't born to be small. I just wasn't. I, I I just believe that about myself. I wasn't born to be small. And um, so when I can show up and say like, and I do talk to myself, I'm like, oh, wait a minute, Mal. What's going on? How is this helpful? Is this helpful? Like I try to get curious. Um, I try to um, talk to myself like I would my kids. Like, hey, what do you need? What's going on? How can I help? Um, sometimes I have to get like mean to that voice and like, you know, like, STFU, sit down in the corner, talk to the hand, you know, whatever. Like sometimes I have to get pretty sassy, but I would say that's probably been like the, that is the coping mechanism or the tool that I use the most is definitely how I show up and talk to myself. That self-acceptance, really accepting that there are parts of me that are nasty and I just have to, I, I don't necessarily, I'm not, I don't, just because I accept those parts does not mean that I condone those parts or love those parts, but they certainly contribute to making me who I am. And today, you know, February 5th, 2024, I can say I like who I am. I, I'm 40, about to be 41. Like I have never in my life liked who I am because I was taught that I was awful. I was taught that I shouldn't like who I am because she was the worst. And I can say today, like, yeah, I like who I am all the, all the bits, you know, and that's only been because I talk to myself differently. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Wow. Well, you made it there in your forties. I'm 57. So, um, it's taken me a bit longer. So uh, you're practically a child, Molly. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's journey is their journey. You know, you I do feel like my a child. Daughter. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> Technically, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, yeah. but I think, 
I think, you know, we all kind of get there on our own terms. I think I was forced into a lot of um, the healing that I've had to do because of those suicidal times in my life. Um, and just remembering thinking, you know, if I died today, at least I'd die happy, you know, just like weird things that just people think right when we're in that space and having the people around me going, this is not like, we're not ready to lose you, you know, like this is not okay. We would love to see you get some help. And then me being willing, willing is the wrong word. Me wanting here's the truth. The people pleaser in me just wanted to make them happy. So it had nothing to do with willingness. I want to take strike that from the record. The people pleaser in me wanted to make them happy. So when they were unhappy, when I saw their reactions, when I just t- spoke my truth about wanting to no longer exist on this earth, I did everything I could to make them happy. And in the process, I would, I have been able to slowly but surely find myself. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Those are good words to speak to, to find yourself, to find your truth. And when, cause um, I'm also a people pleaser, but you didn't know that about me. Um. <laughs> it can be a strength. It can be a real strength. You know, I think, I think we're so used to talking about people pleasing as this like negative because it's often gotten us hurt, right? Like we bent over backwards to our own detriment. But I think when we can temper it with figuring out what's, you know, what's honest and what's kind and move on from there, you know, we have, we build in boundaries. We have better self-talk. I don't mind the people pleaser part of me anymore. Again, I think it's part of what makes me, me. I just don't ever want to like fully, you know, um, stand in that again, because it feels really gross to think about that, like living my life for somebody else. That's part of my discovery right now. That's part of my chapter right now. I, I feel so suffocated and trapped most days because I'm realizing that the weight of decisions that I made in my twenties impact me today. And it's not some days I'm like, damn, this is not the life I would have chosen for myself as a 40 year old woman, right? These are not the same choices I would have made for myself. They're the choices I made for myself when I was in my twenties, but I'm standing in it now, right? Like I'm, I have integrity. I like, I, I understand like the weight of consequences and like whatever, but yeah, I just, I can't, I cannot imagine living myself, living my life fully for somebody else. I need to live it for me. I absolutely have to take into consideration that I have a husband and I have children. I have people who are counting on me. I have to take those things into consideration. And now I actually consider myself, you know, I never used to do that, but I actually consider myself now. So, you know, I, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with being a people pleaser. I think it's how we use it to our advantage. Yeah, well, that's one of the things that I was thinking about too when you were talking. It's um, when sometimes when I get into my people pleasing, I'm losing myself. Mm-hmm. And that's when I know that this is not who I am supposed to be. That's not how I'm supposed to be responding. This isn't working. This isn't going to work for me. I can't sustain this. Yeah. This is not for me. So, of course, Sweet Sobriety taught me that. Um, so, thank you. <laughs> <You're welcome. laughs> 
So what made you wanted to work in the area of food addiction? Like, how did that happen? Yeah. So I think it's a little bit because it's my story. Um, I also think it's because, and you got to see the brunt of this the other day. I really got emotional. I spent a lot of years working with a correctional population, with a population who, um, you know, were losing children because they were using meth and um, heroin and fentanyl and pills and whatever else. And there was a lot of death, a lot of death. There was a lot of suicide. There was a lot of OD deaths. There was a lot of, um, you know, murders and tragic accidents because people were under the influence. Um, there was a lot of loss, children being lost, relationships lost. It's when I say I worked in the trenches, I worked in the trenches, you know, and many people wouldn't like argue with that description of it. Um, it was heavy, heavy work. And I loved my clients. And I think that's why I, the weight of all of that loss was just so much. And I was burning out. <clears throat> and when I realized this was part of my story, it was like, oh my goodness, this is a whole different population. The the severity of the consequences of the use of food is not as immediate as when somebody is using methamphetamine, when somebody is using um, bath salts, when somebody is using, you know, you name it. Um, and so I was like, okay, this is my story. Like these people have time, like let's get in there and start educating and whatever. Like that was kind of my transition of just, it was a way to ease my pain and suffering that I was experiencing from all of that loss. Um, it was a way for me to continue to work on my own journey, um, you know, because we learn as we go. Um, and it was a way to help a population that did not have a whole lot of help. I mean, when I started this journey back in this part of my journey back in 2017, um, my options were 12 step groups and certainly 12 step groups work for people. And I've always been a fan of them for who they work for. I've always supported all of my clients who's ever participated in those programs. Um, I'm not a 12 step joiner. I tried to join, um, ACOA at one point, And I just remember being so uncomfortable and, and this was much earlier. Um, but I just remember being so uncomfortable and just the, um, having grown up Catholic and just, and having bad experiences with that, just everything about it felt super unsafe. And again, now today, again, just right before my 40th birthday being diagnosed with CPTSD, like having a, you know, a, a reason for it, it all makes sense. So I wanted to provide a space for people who were not 12 step joiners all the while supporting people who did want to join us, who were also 12 step members. Um, so yeah, so I would say that that's probably been, it is like, I just wanted to provide a space for people who didn't feel like they super belonged in like the eating disorder world or the, the straight addiction or food addiction world. Um, because I didn't necessarily feel like I fit in those places for many different reasons. So I would say, you know, it's in a lot of ways, I think people could listen to this and be like, oh, wow, that's really selfish. And, and maybe it is. I don't know. But I certainly think that so many of us do because it is our story, right? Like we're all drawn to our professions for one reason or another. And this was, you know, this was my draw is like, it's my story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I definitely can relate to that as well is because it was part of my story and I like to help people, which 
you like to help people. And so yeah. it made sense, right? Yeah. So what, um, what have you gained? Have you gained any significant lessons or insight um, through the process that you wish you would have known earlier? Like, is there anything that you're like, wow, I wish I'd have known that a little bit earlier. That would have been helpful. I mean, I think, I think the diagnosis for myself, the diagnosis of the complex post-traumatic stress disorder. I think if I had known that years ago, um, I think my trajectory would have been very different. I probably would have been a different place today at 40. Now, that being said, I, I, my husband asked me this all the time. He'll be like, if you could go back and change something about the past or the future, you know, or if you could change something about the past, what would it be? I'm like, no, I don't think that I would. I don't, I think that everything had to happen the way that it happened in order for me to even be at this place. Um, so other than knowing that diagnosis early, which I, earlier, which I think we all do, right? Like you get a cancer diagnosis, you get a diabetes diagnosis. Like we all wish we would have had that diagnosis sooner because we think about the time that we would have spent like just getting on it that much sooner. Um, it's not that I wasn't on it. I just wasn't like addressing it specifically. I was kind of addressing the symptoms of, um, but that didn't hurt me. It helped me. So, um, yeah. So I don't know. I don't know that there's anything I wish I would have known sooner, really. All right. Well, we'll move on to the next question then. <laughs> um, are there common misconceptions about addiction and recovery that you would like to address? Oh my goodness. So many. So many. So, so many. many. I think, I think, you know, uh, not to beat a dead horse, but you know, this is not a moral issue. Um, I, I really want to, it's really, really hard for me you know, my own family members, people I'm associated with, just people, just people do not get addiction and that's fine. You know, it's not, if you don't live it every day, you're not going to understand it. It's also not our job to educate it, educate you on it. It's your job to go figure that out. So if you have a loved one who's going through it and you're trying to be supportive or just trying to be less rude about it, um, <laughs> you know, go educate yourself to the best of your ability. Um, and I think ask more questions instead of just making assumptions, ask more questions because I'm telling you right now, nobody that, you know, as a 50 something year old individual who can't stop drinking or using the math or get off the food, whatever was not a four-year-old sitting on their bed, playing with dolls saying someday I want to not be able to stop eating Oreo cookies. Uh, someday I want to be homeless and have to ask for money just so that I can get alcohol. So I don't go through withdrawals. Nobody sat as a young child wishing that that's what they became. Um, I also think that we have to remember that there are many ways to recover. Again, we do not have to be abstinent to be in recovery. And there are many pathways to recovery as a clinician. And probably because as a, as an individual, as just a regular human being, um, I prefer the harm reduction model over the abstinence model. There is no research literature that shows that abstinence model is more effective than the harm reduction model and vice versa because recovery is so individual. So who it works for is who it works for. Um, I want people to know that the harm reduction model does not mean moderation. There is a, a portion or a um, there is an intervention called moderation management that falls under the umbrella of harm reduction. Um, but it's not, that is not entirely what harm reduction is. Um, there's also contingency management, you know, like there's all kinds of like, um, um, 
interventions that fall under this big umbrella of harm reduction. And the ultimate goal of harm reduction would be zero harm, which would be abstinence. But it's not, that's not like the main directive when somebody's working under a harm reduction model, right? Like that's like the best hope that we all have as clinicians for our clients, or that maybe even I had for myself, but that there are limitations to to that, right? Not everybody is going to achieve abstinence or the abstinence that you have defined for yourself, or maybe somebody has decided to define for somebody um, for many reasons. Um, Because it's like a triage kind of thing, right? If somebody has severe mental illness, let's say somebody has schizophrenia or bipolar one or two, and they're in, um, you know, a manic phase or a hypomanic phase, um, or even, you know, the opposite, the depressive phase, whatever. And those needs are always going to come first. And if that means that they're in the food, that they're in the alcohol, that they're in the things and they're alive, I don't know about you, CJ, but I would rather have an alive person than a dead person. <laughs> right. And so, and, and I've thought about that a lot for myself. Um, also thinking about it with grace, you know, like I've kind of always had this like personal mantra of like grit and grace, um, which has helped me through some pretty hard times. And to remind myself that like, I'm a human being and to use food in an emotional time is such a human being thing to do. They've they've been researching emotional eating for 40 years and they still can't freaking figure it out. So why somebody thinks they're going to know me in my life and they're going to come along and say, oh my God, you're doing it wrong and you're not abstinent and you're not in recovery and whatever else. Like, okay, go tell your story to somebody else. I don't need to hear it. Like that doesn't help me. I don't prefer to hear it, you know, whatever. Like if that makes you feel better and helps you sleep at night, you can go tell that story. Um, I would prefer to ask myself what's going on and and how I can help myself or somebody else. Right. So there's a lot of things I think that go along with, um, addiction and recovery and even like mental health things that, um, I wish that people would just be willing to ask more questions about instead of making so many assumptions. Yeah. 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 I I completely understand for sure. Um, what, uh, what ways has your life changed? since you entered recovery, like, yeah, well, um, it's been, I don't know, since I was 22 years old, since I wanted to die. So that's great. You know, like to not have those constant thoughts has been amazing. Um, I would say I have, it's made, it's made it possible for me to have an amazing relationship with my husband. So we're high school sweethearts. And that's why I say like, at the time he was my boyfriend, you know, we've, we've been married um, a long time. So we've been together 23 years, um, married 17. Um, and so it's just allowed me to be closer to him. Right. So like, I don't have that as like a buffer, you know, like I actually have to be honest with myself and with him, about what I'm feeling, even though I am a person who feels so completely. And then when I go to that dissociative state and I'm numb, I feel that so completely too. So it's, it's been a lot of just like, I will just text him and I'll be like, I am so numb right now. And he's like, got it, right? He just gets it because we've had to have these discussions. Um, I was a rager. I would, I would just, all of my anxiety would just come out as rage and I would scream and holler and whatever um, at my kids. And again, they were really young. I mean, this is the part that like 
if I could change anything, this would be the part that I changed. Thank God they were so young though. And it stopped when they were still pretty young. So, and they don't talk about it. So they maybe don't remember it. And if they ever did, then we would talk about it for sure. I'm not trying to um, pretend like it didn't happen um, or that it probably wasn't painful for them, but certainly I don't do that anymore. I am pretty calm. Um, I rather talk to them about it. I rather hug it out, right? Like I rather, you know, my kids are always like, I know, I know you love me too much to argue because that's what I say to them all the time. I love you too much to argue. And they're just like, mom, (laughs) um, but it works, you know, and before I would have just gotten angry and flown off the handle and told them to figure it out, you know, and they're little and they're still pretty little, like at 11 and eight, they're not figuring all life's problems out on their own. Right. So, um, so I would say those relationships have improved. I mean, there's so many things that have improved. Um, my health has improved. Um, my mental health has improved. Um, yeah, like I said, relationships, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I like those you are started your own business. I did start my own business. I had already been my doing my own business. So I'd been in, I've been in private practice since 2013. Um, but but that is part of my recovery too. Yeah, absolutely. To have that um to have that uh uh courage to do that because it is not easy. Um and to have the courage to stand up to colleagues who have always kind of thought, "No, you're the weirdo, Molly. Like you're not doing it the way we're doing it, so you're doing it wrong." Um, so yeah, I would say, I would say there's been a lot of benefit to being on a recovery journey. Definitely. Absolutely. Or I, <laughs> yeah. A growth mindset as my, as I like yeah. to tell my brother, since he doesn't like the word recovery, yeah, I'm like, okay, let's, yeah, let's use that. So, yeah. um, what does a day in the life of being Molly in recovery look like? Yeah. So, um, so I go to bed and I get up every morning roughly at the same time. So, I mean, and I know that sounds so silly maybe and so cliche, but you know, I think about little kids and like little kids thrive on routine and there's a reason for that, right? Like our circadian rhythms, whatever. So I am definitely like a anywhere between 9.30 and 10.30 person to bed every night. I am up every morning by 6 a.m. if not sooner. So 6 a.m. is actually like a sleep in day for me. Like that's the alarm is set to go off at six, but if I make it to six, that's a sleep in. Um so I get up, I've got kids to get off to school in the morning, right? So we, my husband and I cook breakfast every morning, um, which I know not everybody has the luxury of doing, but we, we do. So we do it. We, you know, everybody gets eggs and meat every morning, you know, whatever. We just want to make sure they start the day off that way. We start the day off that way. Um, and then I, if I have time, I will get outside before I start working. And then I, I do, I work, I see clients one-on-one, I've got groups to run, Um, and if I haven't already thought about when I'm going to get out on my adventure, I'm like thinking about like, when am I going to get out on my adventure? Um, I live about a mile from the river. I live very close to the mountains and I don't even have to do those things. Like if I only have 20 minutes, I'm happy to just go for a walk around the block. Like that's good enough some days, or it has to be good enough some days. Um, and then kids start coming home around 3 30. Um, sometimes I'm picking one of them up while the other one's walking home. Um, but then I'm engaged in kids stuff. Sometimes I have to go back to work in the evenings because I have clients or groups. 
Um, and then my husband comes home and we cook dinner together. You know, like it's usually like a pre-planned thing. We know what we're having, to, like we know what we're having for dinner every night this week because who wants to think about that in the moment? That's awful. Um, and, and we cook dinner together. We have dinner as a family and then we kind of do our own little things. The kids have their friends that they want to hang out with, whatever. I'm usually, I'm trying to read a book right now on nuclear war. Um, so, and it's a real serious book. It's not like a fun book. It is a serious book. It appeals to the poli-sci major in me. So you guys didn't know this, but I, my undergrad is in poli-sci, um, or political science. Sorry, I should probably say the whole thing. Um, and then, yeah, then we do nighttime routine. Kids are in, you know, they're in their rooms by eight in bed by eight 39. Like I said, I'm in bed by nine 30 to 10 30. So it's, it's, it sounds boring on paper, but I'm telling you it's, I'm doing chores. I've got dogs getting outside. I'm always taking pictures and sending them to people. Um, and then getting reminded how much of a hippie I am, you know, like all of those things. So I live a pretty full life. And then in the background, I'm always kind of like, what's my next adventure? So Clarissa and I are getting ready to go to Europe in, um, for four weeks. We leave mid-May. We don't come back till mid-June. That's been fun to think about and plan and, and all of that. Um, you know, there's always something going on, managing group members, managing what's coming up with um, the business. Are we going to have new workshops? You know, all of that. So there's always something going on. Um, actually, I, I didn't think it sounded boring at all. Oh, okay. Um, good. In fact, <laughs> I will be in Europe, with, not with you, but at the same time. So Woo-hoo. I'll be there for two weeks. So not quite the four weeks that you're getting, but <laughs> nonetheless, still. It'll be fun. So yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And actually, um, my sister, uh, Katie, says that she's coming too. So Woo-hoo. that will be exciting. So tell me tell me what the role that your friends, your family, support groups played in your recovery. Yeah. Okay. So this is something else you have to know. And this is, this is part of my CPTSD. This is also part of how I grew up. So we moved a lot. I went to 12 or 13 different schools before I was in ninth grade. Yeah. So ninth grade high school, four years of high school was the longest I ever lived in one place as a kid, zero to 18. Um, so I make friends when I work places. So I have like workplace friends and sometimes those friendships grow beyond that. But having worked for myself since 2013, as you can imagine, I don't have workplace friends. So, um, Clarissa is my friend. My husband is my friend, literally my best friend. Like I said, we're high school sweethearts. And again, that sounds cliche. And I always wanted to throw up in my mouth a little bit when I used to tell my story. Um, now I'm just like, well, it is what it is. So um, we have a couple friends around here. Um, but so what role did they play? I would say Clarissa played a role. My husband played a role. Um, my extent, my sister, well, not really. My sister, not really. I mean, I could talk to her about things. She understands if I talk to her about weight loss kind of stuff, but beyond that, I don't know that she would really, she's never really given me the the impression that she would like to hear more about any of it, if that makes sense. Um, So uh, my therapist has always been a helpful person, Um, colleagues, just because we are all kind of on the same page. But again, I think it's part of my story as far as like, I am not a person who needed those really strong interventions in order to have to stop or change my behavior because I'm so acutely aware of like, this isn't working for me and this is really painful and I don't want to continue this pain. So 
they, they played a role and certainly I'm appreciative of the support and I love them and I couldn't have done it without them. I also didn't have a whole lot of like, it's not like I had like hundreds of people that were like rallying behind me. Yeah. I, I gosh, I, I wish I knew a hundred people that would rally <laughs> behind me for my recovery. Right. <laughs> yeah. That'd be nice. Yeah. What does, uh, what, what is something that you're still working on in your recovery? Yeah. So struggling with. Yeah. So I would say it is, it's like the chapter that I'm currently in, in my life where I am really like honest to God. I, I, it's like, I'm a teenager who's trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up, because I did live, I went to school for my mom. I, everything was for somebody else. Um, like because my, my, eight-year-old came in here last night and asked me why I became a therapist. And I had to like walk her through it. I'm like, it's not like I dreamed of being a therapist as a kid. Like it just happened to be the next step that I knew how to take to like get out of the pain that I was in. Um, now that being said, I am a therapist at this point. I'm very good at what I do. If I do say so myself, I, (laughs) I apparently like it because I continue to work for myself in this field. Um, but so the chapter that I'm in is just really figuring out who I am, what I want, like in my ideal, like if I could design an ideal life or if I could design like what that would look like and just getting curious about, you know, what components kind of go to it. Um, what makes, you know, how would I know I'm being a good wife? How would I know I'm being a good mom? Um, what does my soul need? And I'm discovering my soul needs to like leave. So my husband's a homebody. He will never leave Montana unless forced to do so because of like a job issue or something along those lines. Um, he likes to stay home on the weekends and play video games. He's a software engineer guys. Like he's, he's an introvert. Like think, you know, think geek squad with Best Buy, like that's him. And that's fine. That is fine. And he knows, right? Like I, I love him. I love him. Um, it's not for me. So, um, so I know I need to travel. I know I need new experiences, novel experiences. I know that I need, a bigger understanding of the world and like my role in the world. Um, and so that only comes with me doing like self-exploration, but also like getting out there into the big wide world. So I'd say that's what I'm working on is like, how do I stimulate the parts of me that need to be stimulated so that I don't want to go back to something like the food or the booze or the whatever in order to feel stimulated enough to like be okay in this life that you know, living a life that I actually don't want. If that makes yeah. sense, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking like, to know yourself better. yeah, yes, yeah. exactly. Exactly. And that's why I call it discovery. You know, it's this idea, you know, they did that rat part experiment <clears throat> and they knew that when the rats were stimulated, you know, they kept calling it community and connection. And I'm not saying that's not a part of it because obviously those things are stimulating. Um, but there is a piece of like, some of us just need more stimulation than others. And when we can find what does that for us, you know, it could literally be, I mean, I don't have to leave Montana. I can just go down the road to my favorite place in the world to go ride and go ride. And that could be enough for, you know, that could boost me for a week or a few days or whatever. And then I've got to go do something else. So I think that's really where I'm at right now is just figuring out like, yes, I made choices in my twenties that I'm now like, Ooh, are those really what I, is that what I want to live today as a 40 year old? Um, so I'm figuring out like what what could the next 20 years be like? All right. 
No. Well, we're winding down here. So the last question is the woo-woo question. So if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about food addiction, what would it be? I think it would just be like, have it on your radar that it's possible that this is even a thing for people. You know, I think, um, I think if I could tell my younger self something about addiction in general, like starting there, it would be like, I think I, I think I would have kinder eyes for my dad at that time. He was my favorite person. He's still my favorite person. He passed away in September, 2022, the end of September, 2022, massive heart attack. Um, and, uh, I think it would just be those kinder eyes. And I think if I could have viewed him more kindly, then I think I would have viewed myself more kindly, um, in those years when like, I thought it was codependency and emotional eating. And maybe at the time it was those things. Right. But then it kind of like, again, it developed. And then I was like, Whoa, this is too much. Something has to shift. Um, but yeah, even just that it's, it's a thing. It is a real thing. People live with it every day and they deserve dignity to make their own choices. They deserve kindness and honesty. They deserve support. Um, they deserve to have a safe space to get better. Um, yeah, I think that's what I would tell myself. That would be wonderful to know at a young age, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, sure. thanks for thanks for joining me today, Molly. It's been wonderful, and I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us today. So, thank yeah, you. You're welcome. Thanks, CJ, for asking me. Thank you for joining me this week for Food Junkies Recovery Stories. Make sure you join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group. I'm sweet enough. Please subscribe to our show so that you never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in today's story, we would appreciate a ratings on iTunes. If you've been inspired by today's show and would like to be a guest, please reach out through the email provided in the show notes. If you have additional questions, CJ is a food addictions professional and works one-on-one -on -one with clients. You can find her email address and website in the show notes. Thank you for joining us.